From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. A new nominee is in place for the Inspector General job at the Department of Health and Human Services. President Trump's selection is Jason Weida. He's an assistant U.S. attorney in Boston. The Hill newspaper reports Weida is a veteran of the Office of Legal Policy at the Department of Justice. The Department of Veterans Affairs has a new acting chief of staff. Brooks Tucker will take over the job and keep his current job as assistant secretary for the Office of Congressional and Legislative Affairs. Military Times reports Tucker replaces Pamela Powers as acting chief of staff. She's now the acting deputy secretary of the agency. The Army will scale up its deployment of thermal cameras to check temperatures of people visiting military facilities. The Army's Rapid Equipping Force started using the cameras at the Pentagon Visitor Center April 22nd. More locations around the National Capital Region, Army Training Centers, and throughout U.S. Army North will get the cameras soon. Thousands of federal retirees are going back to work for the government during the coronavirus pandemic to help with the response. The decision to go back to work, though, could impact your retirement and benefits. Jessica Clements, Staff Vice President of Policy and Programs for the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. Jesse, it's good to see you. Thank you for coming on. What is happening to federal Hi, retirees? Thanks who are, for having me. What is happening to folks who are going back to work for the government? whether they're going to work at a different job or coming back after being off for a period of time? So Francis, when I first started talking about this issue with some of our federal benefits experts, I thought that there was a simple answer, right? Like, oh, I'm a federal annuitant. I wanna go back to work either to help with the census or help with COVID or just because there's an opportunity to do so. It's like, oh, what do I need to know? And I learned that there is no easy answer to that question. Um, in fact, we did an hour-long webinar just on that topic a couple weeks ago and barely scratched the surface. What are the things that people who are thinking about taking one of these jobs, VA is asking for people, the military services are asking for people who are retired to come back. What are the things that the employee or the potential employee should think about when she's going, do I want to do this? or is this maybe not the right thing for me? So I think the biggest thing right now is the waiver authority. Are you going back part-time or full-time? And does the agency hiring you have the authority to not offset your salary by your pension? So that's like, that's the biggest thing, right? If I go back to work as an annuitant, is my salary going to be offset by my pension? Um, and we got a lot of questions during the Q&A in our webinar. Uh, during our webinar, how do I know that? Well, you have to ask the agency. The census was a, a big one before COVID hit. I wanna go back to work for the census part-time. Are they granting me a waiver? Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, ask the employing agency, ask the VA. I know the VA was provided the authority by OPM to hire back annuitants full-time um, and provide that waiver. So you can, the waiver means during that time, you can collect both your full pension and the full salary. So when you say though that an agency has the authority, and I don't mean to pick on VA, but when the agency has the authority, that doesn't mean it's automatic, does it? That still means that you have to make sure that that waiver applies to you on an individual basis. Is that a fair read? Yes. 
Yes. And one of the things that I learned, I think as we talked about on your program, uh, the most recent defense authorization bill extended the waiver authority to agencies. So agencies no longer had to ask OPM for that authority. So when the VA contacted NARF and said, hey, can you help us get the word out? My first question was, why did you have to go to OPM for this waiver authority? I thought the NDAA granted that to agencies that they didn't need OPM's approval. One of the things that I learned is that was for only part-time work. Mm. So agencies don't have to go to OPM for that waiver authority if they're rehiring annuitants on a part-time basis, but they do in a full-time basis. Also, the agency may not ask OPM for that authority. So if they don't, then obviously that is a job where you will not be receiving the waiver. Is there a way to tell or do you just have to ask as you're dealing with the human resources office at the agency that you're considering going back to? So from what I've seen, it's usually covered in the USA Jobs announcements. Okay. You'll see it right there, whether or not it is provided. But if it's not, one of the questions we got was, I don't see it. Does that mean it's not granted? I said, you know, it's probably a safe assumption, but it never hurts to ask. Um, kind of lost in all this coronavirus stuff is that this is Public Service Recognition Week. Nobody canceled it because of coronavirus. How are people trying to recognize it given that nobody's collecting in the same place and that all of the traditional things that we would do involve that? You know, you see agency heads thanking people as they're coming into the office, but hardly anybody's coming into the office. The last number I saw was like 85% of people are working remotely. What's happening to kind of perpetuate it to make sure it's not lost in the shuffle? That is a great question, and I'm so happy to be here with you. At the beginning of Public Service Recognition Week, um, this started in 1985. Um, it's a week set aside every year to honor public servants at all levels. Obviously, our focus is on the federal level and public service. So I've seen a lot on social media, you know, really encouraging our members to use social media to thank their fellow feds to talk about the work they did. I've seen agencies, I've seen other nonprofits, think tanks use social media to really promote PSRW. One of the things NARF is doing today is sending a letter to the Hill, really listing um, what federal employees have been doing during this time of COVID. COVID. I think the Small Business Administration is a great example on things that feds are doing that are not flashy. They're not the things you see on television, right? But in FY19, the Small Business Administration processed $30 billion worth of loans. In the first two weeks after the CARES Act, they processed $349 billion in loans. In two weeks compared to $30 billion in the previous, you know, the previous calendar or fiscal year. It's really amazing what some of these organizations have done. We have about a minute left. Speaking of uh, communicating with the Hill, I asked you mm -hmm. when you were here the last time, what does that look like in this environment? Senate's coming back, the House is not, right. and so I imagine that you're kind of learning a, a next normal when it comes to all of this. I am. I think we're all learning a next normal when it comes to this, unprecedented for all of us. I mean, I found my Hill communications are just a lot more emails, it's a lot more phone calls. Like all of us, I'm spending a lot more time actually talking on the phone, you know, because there are no meetings. Um, there have been a good number of Zoom calls, Skype calls put on with members of Congress and um, other organizations as well. So we've really been engaging with them um, the same way you and I are engaging right now, uh, a new normal. But I, 
have found that the communication has been really good and member offices have made it a point to continue to engage during this time. Jesse, it's great to see you as always. Stay safe. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Francis. Up next, overseeing the coronavirus stimulus bill. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the best ways for the government to prevent waste, fraud and abuse. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The CARES Act will distribute trillions of dollars to help with the coronavirus response. Preventing waste, fraud and abuse will be a key focus for the people that oversee the implementation of the act. Danny Werfel's managing director and partner at the Boston Consulting Group, former acting commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service and former controller at the Office of Management and Budget. He's writing about fighting fraud in the Hill newspaper. Danny, thanks very much for coming on. You were right at the heart of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. What did you learn from that that you think could apply in the CARES Act response? Yeah, well, one of the things, first of all, thanks for having me on, Francis, and I hope you're doing well. Um, one of the things that uh, happened during the Recovery Act, um, and I think the CARES Act looks to mimic this a bit, is they stood up the Recovery Accountability and Transparency Board, or as everyone fondly recalls it being called the RAT Board, yes. which is kind of a good name for it because it was, you know, looking to uh, rat out any fraud or bad behavior um, with, uh, with the spending in the Recovery Act. And in standing up that board, um, they were very proactive in pushing the envelope and pushing technology to uh, to try to really root out root out fraud and error. And one of the big things they did that I talk about in the piece was they stood up a data analytics center. It was called the Recovery Operations Center, or fondly called the ROC. And that really was the first time for a lot of government agencies, including myself that we really saw the power of big data and forensic data analysis brought to the issue of fraud, error, improper payments, and waste in government programs. It was fascinating for me to read this piece for that very reason, because I remember covering the RAT board and talking to your colleague Earl Devaney uh, when I was at the radio station, talking about the, the work that they were doing and how they were doing it. It was so revolutionary at the time and now when we look back on it, it's kind of like looking at an old car. You go, wow, that was really cool back in the day. Now we have such, more, such incredibly robust tools to be able to do the kinds of things you're talking about. We talked about what's the same. What's dramatically different in the way that people will have, uh, in the tools that people will have to be able to oversee the money that goes out? Well, it's been 11 years, and so, and you're right. I mean, this was revolutionary. Um, you know, at the time, uh, in talking to Earl, the way he described it to me was that, you know, he had known that that there were important advances going on in data analytics in the intelligence community that were really game changers in terms of, of forensically looking at data differently. And his idea was, why not bring this into the mainstream of how we look at uh, grants and contracts and figure out if we can de detect patterns of, of both 
inadvertent fraud and advertent fraud or inadvertent error and advertent fraud. And so, um, and so it, it was new and it set a tone. And I can recall early on in the Recovery Act, um, the, the RAT board calling over to OMB and, and really pointing out before we could get wind of any, it's some basic mistakes that were being made. So it doesn't have to be rocket science to be effective. So for example, from a central standpoint, they were looking at whether any contracts were going to suspended or debarred entities and pointing it out really, really quickly so that we could turn around and tell the agencies. The reality is today, we still have to do those basics. We can't ignore them. But now when you look at the way data analytics and, and forensic tools have changed, and in particular, artificial intelligence is it's in the use of data is it's so much more of an advanced capability today than it was 11 years ago. I mean, we should really be able to be that much more quicker and effective at staying in front of fraud uh, schemes, because you know what's happened as well in the last 11 years? Fraud schemes have gotten more sophisticated as well. So we really have to be up to the challenge. What does a next generation rock look like and what kind of investment does it take to make that happen, Danny? I think the one of the main things I would I would tell the the new the new version of the of the rack board is first of all, there are now data and analytics centers or rocks, if you will throughout government. So I don't know that they actually need to rebuild their own rock in that infrastructure. I might go and look at some of the other uh, data analytics centers that, that are stood up and almost use them as a shared service and almost compete them and say, who, which of these are the best situated to, uh, to meet our needs today? Um, and then I would really kind of, you know, the lesson learned from the Recovery Act is that when you're spending money quickly, uh, and there's pressure to get out the money in a way where you're not using some of the traditional uh, controls that, that go into our slower pace of spending that we see in traditional programs. I mean, we need to understand what risks emerge then because they'll be similar now in the type of uh, fraud schemes that might emerge. So I think if they study those patterns um, and leverage an existing solution that already has a lot of the embedded algorithms and technology and AI, and they can hit the ground running fairly quickly. Danny Werfel, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you as always. I commend this piece to anybody that cares about waste, fraud, and abuse. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Francis. Coming next, relief for some small business contractors in the CARES Act. Straight ahead on Government Matters, five ways the government can support small businesses and itself better. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. One section of the CARES Act provides for help to small business government contractors, but there's a potential roadblock there for vendors who try to get relief. John Chirac is co-founder and managing director of Gov Contract Pros, former associate administrator of government contracting and business development at the Small Business Administration. John, thanks for coming on as always. You write about Section 3610 of the CARES Act. What is the potential roadblock there for vendors? Sure. Thanks, Francis, for um, the opportunity. I appreciate being on this morning. Um, I think 3610 in, in general is a, is a positive move, right? So if a uh, contractor is unable to uh, have their employees perform 
on site, they can potentially, and the, the important term is potentially, uh, be able to invoice the government for paid leave. I think the roadblock is, one, it's discretionary to the contracting officer. So that, that number one is not, so it's not mandatory. Number two, I think um, the multiple uh, steps that one has to go to to qualify, right? So you have to not be able to perform on site, either because of closure or access restriction. You have to not be able to telework from home, uh, maybe security or maybe construction issues. And then ultimately, you have to demonstrate that you are retaining the employees in order to keep them in ready state. Uh, once those are met, then it is still discretionary with respect to the contracting officer to allow you to invoice that paid leave. You've got, uh, in, in this piece that you wrote recently on your website, you've got five ways the government can support small businesses better moving forward, and I want to talk through each of them. Just a very quick thought, please, about each one of them. The first one is to increase small business goals for all the recovery funds to 30 percent. Why does that make a big difference, John? Um, that's important, I think, because whenever we talk about a recovery, uh, we always talk about going local and going small, right? If you implement or when you evoke or invoke the uh, Stafford Act, uh, the um, intent of recovery spending is to go local and to go small. And so uh, when we do that, it has a direct impact on the recovery process. And making sure that small business enga is engaged in a meaningful way gets the funds to the local economy. So 30% as opposed to the standard 23% really helps to move the needle with respect to an impact on a local economy. And I'll say that after the Great Recession, uh, the White House guidance or guide, uh, guidelines were to meet the 30%, right? We knew that the goal was 23%, but uh, in particular, the Office of the Vice President uh, requested and provided guidance for agencies to use the recovery funds in a way where we would hit 30% with small businesses. The second one you write about is suspending category management goals for all agencies for the rest of the calendar year and for all of the recovery money that's distributed. Do you worry that it will be harder to get back on the category management track once uh, these kind of exceptions might be made? Sure, I do. Um, you know, in me, me in particular, with respect to uh, advocating for small business, um, I've always found uh, category management problematic for small business participation, right? Uh, however, especially in, in an environment where we want to go small and we want to go local, category management has the almost diametrically opposing uh, factors because you're, you're using uh, uh, buying on volume from limited participants to drive down the prices. And in a, in a disaster environment, you really want to go local and you want to go small. I think, you know, we could have a whole session with respect to category management and its negative impact on small business participation and the reduction of small businesses uh, engaged in federal procurement. Um, you know, uh, the federal government doesn't necessarily or shouldn't necessarily try to emulate um, the private sector, right? There's a different mission. They don't have um, stockholders, they have stakeholders and constituents. So it's really important to make sure um, that especially uh, in this environment, we don't detract from going local and going small and category management by definition detracts from that. So I think it's important, at least for this year and with recovery funds, to be able to spend it in a way that's 
efficient for contracting officers. We're starting to run out of time, John, so I want to pass over two of these and just mention them and, and ask you about the last one. The third one you write sure. about is extending the 8A program for another year for current participants since this year is pretty much gone. You make the argument in the piece about the case for that. The third one, or the fourth one, excuse me, is increasing sole source thresholds and making them uniform. The last one is that for all recovery funds, you write making sole source requirements for women-owned small businesses, hub zone, and service disabled veterans, um, uh, OSB businesses, similar to 8A. Why is that important? What would that do for small business participation and, and basically survival? Yeah, I think it's it's important, and, and it really ties into increasing the threshold. So in a, in a, in a reactive environment where we have, um, you know, the re requirement to have a quick response to recovery, uh, and to spend appropriately and attract the right types of businesses, um, really allowing contracting officers not just quick access to 8A firms through the simplified uh, sole source provisions in the 8A uh, program, but extending that to the other socio categories, right? We want the contracting officers to get to the best firms in a timely fashion. And they can certainly do that under the 8A program. I argue, as you mentioned, that maybe those thresholds should be increased because they haven't been increased for over a decade, right? So maybe those thresholds need to be increased and made uniform across all the socio-categories. But access to all small businesses is really critical at the moment, and especially with recovery funds. So if we can get to 8A firms quickly and easily, we should be able to get to the other socio-categories quickly and easily as well. It works for the firms. They get the contracts and it works for the federal government because they get to the access to the best contractors to help in the recovery process. John Chirac, a great insight. Thanks very much for coming on as always. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm Cherise Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.